Good morning. Hey, there we go. Well, my name is Brock Ashley, and honored to be here with you this morning as Pastor Mike is away uh, at seminary uh, this week in Portland, Oregon. So he is uh, exactly two hours behind us, I believe, on Pacific time. So you, you can be sure that he slept in while all of us got up early to make it to church on time so we can think bad thoughts about him right now. Let's all do it together collectively. There we go. All right, so today we're going to be taking a bit of a departure from the book of Romans and going to be looking at a, actually a two-part message that we'll look at both this week and next week. But uh, what I love about the Bible is how it's got a connectivity, how that from one end to the other, the Bible is a one common word. So Jared thought as he was reading out of the sixth chapter of Romans this morning that he was going to be talking about something that was in the message when in fact we're jumping back to Exodus. But here we are in Exodus, and we're talking about being freed from sin, much like what Romans chapter 6 was talking about. So you got to love the way the Lord weaves all these things together. But as we make our way uh, this direction, really this, this two-part series is, uh, because this week is Memorial Day week, I wanted to cover this, and I know you'll never guess what next week's message title is, with this week being the land of the free, so I'm going to leave that to be a mystery. You'll have to come back next week to find out just what the title is going to be. I am very clever, though, just so you know. But previously, in the book of Exodus, in the 17th chapter, where we found the nation of Israel is, they have been delivered from the hands of Pharaoh, and they're out in the wilderness And as Moses is bringing them from the Red Sea and through the wilderness of sin or zin, depending on your translation, we see that they are now thirsty. They've just been fed with manna from heaven, but now they're crying out to the Lord because they have nothing to drink. And so they're griping and grumbling to Moses as, you know, you brought us out here to die. You know, you gave us food, but now we're thirsty. We need one more thing, the next thing that we have to have. Now, the Lord understands that we need water to survive, and so he had uh, put a plan together for Moses to be able to go and strike a rock at a place called Mirabah, and from that rock, that water wouldn't just trickle out like what I thought as a kid in Sunday school. I thought it looked like the little water fountain, but instead it'd be a gushing stream that would flow from the rock there, and the people, some nearly two million, based on our estimates, people could be uh, taken care of with water and their animals uh, in the same way. And what we see is, uh, this is really a picture for us of Jesus Christ, that the rock represents Christ, and the water represents the living water that flows from Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 38, I'll go there and read this for you. What Jesus says in his own words is that he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So as Jesus is crucified, and then he has already passed away, the Roman soldiers come up and they pierce him through his heart, and what actually pours forth is both water and blood that pours forth out of them, out of him. And scientifically, what we understand is that this is actually caused by his heart rupturing inside that water sack. So Jesus actually died of a broken heart. And that water and blood pouring forth, this is the symbolism that we see as the water pours out of this rock in Mirabah thousands of years earlier. And this is a water that we really see as salvation. All right, So this saved the people from dying of thirst, much like we can be saved from the living waters of Christ himself. And the reason I bring all that about 
isn't just to take up three minutes of your time, but is instead to bring you up to speed and also to say that once you've received the salvation waters of Christ, that the next thing that happens is what we're going to look at today, a battle ensues. So right now, if you're living for the world, you don't have anything to worry about as far as battles go uh, spiritually because you're doing exactly what Satan wants you to do. But as soon as you change courses and you redirect and you commit your life to Christ, then the battle will ensue for you to change that course. So let's look this morning in Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. We pick up in verse 8. And now Amalek, those pesky Amalekites, came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when Moses let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have, Am- have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So let's go through this and break this down a little bit, beginning with verses 8 and 9. And we ask ourselves a question right off the bat, who are these pesky Amalekites anyway? Well, in the book of Genesis, we find out from a genealogy standpoint who these guys are. In Genesis chapter 36, verse 12, this is a family lineage of Esau. And in verse 12, we can read that now Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz, and these were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. So Amalek was a direct descendant of Esau. And that's important to us in the story today because the Bible has a lot of different types, in particular in the Old Testament. And these types are put there to give us a a deeper understanding and a learning of the text. And a type, for example, if we look at oil in the Old Testament, oil is always representative of the Holy Spirit. So as you see oil poured over the the heads of kings and people are anointed, you can see their spirit actually being, uh, the Holy Spirit actually being poured out on people, and that gives us a type that that gives us a deeper meaning to these stories. And the type that we're looking at here today is that of Amalek, who is a type of the flesh. And we know this because of his family tree, his lineage. He's a descendant, a great-grandson of Esau. And we know Esau had a very fleshly nature. If we look just a little bit farther back in the book of Genesis at a famous story about Esau that would help us to understand this flesh nature that he had, we see in chapter 25, verse 29, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was very weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with some red stew, for I am weary. 
Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, look, I am about to die. So what is this birthright to me? And then Jacob said, swear to me this day. So he swore to him and, his birthright, and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So what we see in this story is Esau was a guy that was very much driven by his flesh. He was hungry, he needed food right then, and he needed it taken care of. So much so that he was willing to give up his birthright. Now I don't know uh, what kind of birthright any of you have, what kind of inheritance you're looking at. If it's anything like me, I'm probably going to get an invoice telling me just how much I owe. But for Esau, this was a really big deal. Esau came from the line of Abraham, right? Abraham gave birth to Isaac, who was a very wealthy man, who then gave birth to both Esau and Jacob. And Esau, being the oldest twin, was going to get a double portion of the inheritance. So we're talking about literally the most expensive cup of soup in history, all to, to, because he was hungry, to satisfy the flesh. So that's where we get this idea that Amalek, because he had a lot in common with great-grandpa, is a picture of flesh throughout the Bible. And again, this is important to us because we see that over and over again in the Old Testament, this isn't the only time that the nation of Israel is going to experience the Amalekites. That in fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, what Saul is told by... Boy, look out. What Saul is told uh, by Samuel the prophet in verse 3 of chapter 15 is, Now go out and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. That does not leave a whole lot of room for interpretation of exactly what Saul was supposed to do, right? And it seems pretty harsh to us. But let's continue on. Because what Saul does is he almost does what God told him to do. In verse 13, as uh, Samuel comes back out after the battle with the Amalekites is over and Saul has a great victory, is Saul comes out to him and says, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul's so proud of himself. But the problem was he didn't quite take care of business. Because in verse 14, Samuel's response is, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? He couldn't quite take care of all the animals because surely when God says all, he doesn't mean all, right? There's a lot of sheep and a lot of oxen. And Saul comes up with some cockamamie story that he was going to sacrifice these animals to the Lord. But really what it was is we see the disobedience that's taken place in Saul's life. And it's an even bigger picture what the Lord was trying to command was he had this whole thing laid out, and he understood what was going to happen in the future. And by that, I mean in the book of Esther, which we covered a couple weeks ago, there's a main evil character in that, and this guy's name is Haman. Now, evil Haman had a particular lineage himself. If you were to go to Esther chapter 3, verse 1, what we would see is that Haman, chapter 3, verse 1, and after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. So Haman was given this great uh, honorable spot in the kingdom. He was the son of Hamadetha, however you say that. The important piece here, the Agagite. 
You see, one of the people that Saul did not kill when he was told to utterly wipe out the Amalekites was a guy named King Agag. So we can see pretty clearly that Haman, who his masterful plan was to completely obliterate the Jewish people off of the face of the earth. He actually had King Ahasuerus sign a decree that says all Jews would be wiped out on a certain day. So 500 years after Saul was commanded to take care of these people, take care of this problem, his lack of obedience almost cost his entire people their very existence. So as we look at this uh, story, and we think that what God commands about uh, Saul going out and utterly wiping out the Amalekites, it seems pretty harsh when we consider women, children, animals. But this is a picture of flesh for us. And what we understand is if we're not willing to deal with our flesh, if we're not willing to utterly wipe it out from one end to the other and destroy it, that that little piece that we're desirous to hang on to it could be the thing that comes back to bite us years down the road. And maybe not just us, maybe even our kids when they have to deal with these things that we refuse to deal with. We just can't quite bring ourselves to deal with. Now, this is also important to note because this story uh, of where we're at in Exodus, because it's the first time that we see the nation of Israel having to actually fight their own battles. So in uh, Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, as they're making their way or getting ready to make their way across the Red Sea, what we can read there, what Moses tells the people from the Lord is, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. So in terms of salvation, our need to go into battle isn't really there. God has already done the work. Stand still and watch. I've taken care of your salvation. But when it comes to our flesh, then it's time to pick up our sword. And that's what we see as these people transition away from salvation, away from that saving water of Christ. They've already been set apart, that now they have to pick up a sword and they have to fight. So let's take a look at that as we dig into verses 10 and 11 of chapter 17. So Joshua did as Moses said to him. He went out and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went on top of the hill. And so it was as Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. But as, as he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. So what I want to point out in this section of Scripture is the battle that Joshua is fighting is no ordinary battle. That I'm guessing that Joshua was swinging his sword with just as much might, just as much strength, whether Moses had his hands up or whether he had his hands down. He was fighting his tail off, fighting for survival. But the outcome was far different based on what Moses was doing. With his hands up in surrender, with his hands up in worship, with his hands up in praise with his hands up in prayer. You see, what I put up there on the screen is winning has to do with prayer, and the physical victory is found in the realm of the spiritual. And that's hard for us to grasp because we want to have some bit of us to do with the, with the victory, right? We want to know that we had some peace in this victory, but what we read here is that really Joshua had an obligation to fight, to stand up for himself, but the victory wasn't his. The victory was actually in prayer as Moses held his hands up to the sky. So the question I have for you up here is, what do I bring to God, or better yet, what do I not bring to him? 
What things am I not willing to turn loose and let loose of? Am I willing to bring to him the small things, the little things in my life? Or am I thinking, listen, God has got way too much on his plate. You know, he's got an entire group of people in Texas right now that are mourning the loss of their children. He's got a, a plane that went down in Cuba to worry with. Why does he want to worry about my little things? You know, I, I'm just mad that the dog pooped on the floor. You know, I, I've, got, I've got these small things. Surely he doesn't want to hear from me about this. But then what happens is, because we don't want to battle, maybe it's too uncomfortable for us that we don't enter in, or even when we do battle, that we don't pray, and so we don't have victory. We're like the old Batman cartoons from the 1960s. It's wham, zap, pow, and we're knocked out. That's it. The Joker wins again because we don't come to him in prayer. So let's move on to this next section of Scripture. But Moses' hands became heavy, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported him, one on one side and one on the other, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. What we realize here is Moses didn't do this thing on his own. That in fact, what he needed was a little help from his friends. And this shows us the power of corporate prayer. This is a difficult thing for a lot of us in our Midwestern mentality, right? We don't necessarily want to come and ask someone to pray with us. We don't really like prayer meetings because it's weird and it's a little strange. And I don't know about praying out loud. What if I confess something that uh, people think less of me about, right? What if I, what if I talk about something and, and people think that I don't have it all together and I want them to feel that way about me? So we avoid it. But notice in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, we're going to be here whenever uh, we resume Wednesday nights in the book of Ecclesiastes. Really been blessed by the studies of that. I've uh, been mostly blessed by other people's teachings and not so much mine. If you, if you come, you'll probably hear somebody else, and it'll be really good. Um, chapter 4, verse 12, we see, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we see the power of having your friends come alongside you and to stand up with you. And Jesus even understood this. As he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't go there just to pray alone. He takes Peter, James, and John along with him. And as far as friends go to go along and pray with you, these guys were lousy. They fell asleep. They took a nap. I can promise you if you come to one of our Wednesday night prayer meetings, I can't promise. I'm pretty sure nobody's going to fall asleep while you pray. I'm fairly confident. At least I'm going to try not to. But in this case, we see these guys napping, but they were still there. There's still that camaraderie, that, that friendship, that kinship that happens with corporate prayer. And turn with me one other place to James chapter 5, all the way to the right, the book of James. In James chapter 5, verse 16, this is something that James addresses. He says in verse 16, Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, a sin nature. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again that the heaven, would, and that the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So the question here is, does this have anything to do with Elijah and his, the quality of his prayer? 
No, what we read here scripturally is it has to do with being fervent. The fervent prayer of a righteous man. And I put up there the definition of fervent is passionate intensity. Boy, how many times do I actually have passionate intensity in my prayer? I'm ashamed to say not very often. I'm not sure how many times I'm passionately intense about anything other than what I want, right? I'm, I'm intense about getting lunch. I'm pretty, I'm pretty passionate about that. I'd like to eat. I've got a lot of Esau in me. So the question is, where does our faith lie? Where's our strength? Is our strength in relying on the Lord that he's going to take care of things? Or is our strength in our own abilities? Uh, D.L. Moody shared a story with one of his elders, and they were watching this little girl as she walked along a, a stream, and she had one of these beautiful hats on like you'd wear on Sunday or like you would have saw at the royal wedding, you know, one of the expensive ones with the feathers on it that I don't understand how that could cost $10,000, but apparently it does. But she's got this beautiful hat on, and a, and a gust of wind comes by, and it blows her hat off, and it goes down in the stream, and it carries her hat away. And she, she doesn't cry. She doesn't throw a fit. She just continues to skip alongside the stream. And, and Moody says to his elder, he says, you see the faith of that little girl? The guys kind of wonder, what, what faith? She has faith that her mother will get her another hat. Right? She has faith that her mother's going to get her another hat. So if her mother's willing to take care of her in this way, how much faith do I have that my father will take care of me? How much faith do I have that he's concerned about my little things, the things that I'm not willing to bring to him? Right, so too often, I'm not willing to give those things up to, to go to him with those problems. As I pulled in this morning and my light came on my truck that said, low tire pressure. Doggone it, low tire pressure. Ugh. It's a wind coming along and blowing my hat right off my head, right? I've got to deal with low tire pressure. Lord, come on. But yet, some way, somehow, he'll work that out. You watch, there'll be some interaction I have because I've got to change a tire that wouldn't have happened elsewise if I just opened my eyes to see it, right? And this is the same thing that takes place for us in our situations where we're at. He's directing us into a spot where we can have a relationship or we can have a conversation that without low tire pressure, we probably couldn't have had. Passionate intensity. So let's finish up here today as we look at two promises to paradise. Thank you, Eddie Money, for that right there. So the first promise that we see of the Lord in verse 14 is he says, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I, the Lord, will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So what the Lord is saying is that he, the Lord, will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek, or if we think back to our types, if he, he will utterly blot out the remembrance of our flesh from under heaven. So there are two camps you can fall in on this one. If you're in the camp that you're trying to store up as much as you possibly can to your flesh, this is one scary verse, because the Lord is going to utterly blot that thing out from under heaven. It's going to be gone. There's no more to be had. But if you're in the camp where you know that you're relying on Christ as your salvation, if you're storing things up in the Spirit, and you're not as worried about what's going on with the flesh, but instead there's some things in your flesh you would really like for Him to blot out. Boy, I got a track record. I got things a mile long I'd love for Him to blot out under heaven. This is a tremendous verse. 
because it's not dependent on me blotting it out or taking the eraser out there to, to clean it up, that what he's saying is, I will blot it out. He'll take care of those things. And that's his first promise. I, I love this verse in Jeremiah. I know you're tired of the Bible drills, so I'll turn there for you since I cheated with these fancy tabs. And I'll read Jeremiah 17, 14. It's one of my favorites, if I can find Jeremiah. What he says here is, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. You do the work, Lord. You heal me, and I'll be healed. You save me, and I'll be saved. There's nothing I can do about this. But at the end result, when you've healed me, and you've saved me, I'm going to praise you. Right? That's the beautiful thing about our salvation. That's the beautiful thing about this promise. As he blots out the flesh. Now then, in verse 15, back to Exodus. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi is the literal translation of that. It means God, Jehovah, is my banner. Now in the Song of Solomon, in chapter 2, verse 4, we read, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. So the Lord is our banner. The Lord is our flag that we hold up, but it's not just any flag. It's actually the flag of love. This is the banner that we can be under. And this word love that he has there in uh, the Song of Solomon, it's the same word that's translated in the Greek agape. So it's not just any old love. This is a self-sacrificing love that we're under. And I love this quote from Chuck Smith, that it's the goodness of man that brings, it's the goodness of God, excuse me, that brings a man to repentance. How many of us have been to that fire and brimstone revival where they literally try to scare the hell out of you, right? I don't know about you, but I've had the, hair, the hell scared out of me several times. And I've gone away, man, I'm never going to do that again. And wouldn't you know, about two or three days later, I was not only right back into it, I was doing it even better than before. I was going to be good at it this time. And that's, that's what this condemnation really brings about. But the goodness of God, when we finally have gotten ourselves to the end of our rope, when we can't get any lower, and we realize in that spot that God still loves us, that his banner over us is love, his flag he flies over us is love, well, then we can't help but love him back. That's where it changes. That's the game changer. It's not that I don't do these things because I can't. It's that I don't want to do these things. I want it to stop. Now, if any of you came from the era of the coaches that used to yell at you, did you ever come from that, that, that generation where the coach, my, I was kind of at the end of that generation where the coach would chew your, your butt to motivate you because that's what those boys need. Lay a little fire in them. I'm going to yell at them. Now, it's better than the previous generation where they'd actually lay hands on you to shake you up a little bit. You don't get as much of that anymore. But I'll tell a little story of my wife who's sitting over there right now, so she can't do anything about this story. But later she probably can. She is a way better athlete than me, first of all. Like, she, this is embarrassing to say, but throughout high school, she beat me at almost everything. Like, and still, I just quit playing things with her because she just beats me at them. And it's not any fun to lose to a girl, let alone one that you'd eventually marry. But she was a tremendous softball player, and she played underneath a guy named Denny Thornburg. And Denny is famous in the state of Illinois. He's the winningest high school coach in Illinois history. He won something like 92% of his games. I think his conference record when he retired was 115-1. and one. So uh, through her high school career, she suffered through 
three state championships, and then they had a bad year. They got third. You know, I've never won third at squat. That was her bad year. But through that, Denny was a guy that was hard on girls. He was one of the growlers, the grumbler. And uh, Angela was up to bat. One particular story is it was a sectional championship game, and it was at home, and there was a girl, the leadoff hitter was on first base, and Angela was supposed to sacrifice bunt her over to second. And Denny gives her the sign, and she misses the first strike, strike one. He grumbles a little bit and gives her the sign again, and she misses strike two. So now she's down to one strike left, and if you bunt on a third strike and foul it off, you're out. So he's over here, and he grumbles at her and says, well, if you can't get a bunt down, just do whatever you want. And he walks back in the dugout. He's mad. So she proceeds on the next pitch to hit a line drive shot over the left fielder's head, and she ends up with a triple in the run scores. And the crowd's going crazy, and Denny comes out of the dugout, and he says this in love and support. He says, you think you impress me? You depress me. Get the bunt down. <laughs> that was his supportive uh, cry to her. So you can see the kind of uh, track record she had with him. But one particular uh, time period she had, she was struggling to get on first base as she was laying down the sacrifice bunt. She batted number two a lot, so she had to move the leadoff hitter over uh, quite a bit of the time that season. So as she's, she also, because she's fast, she could typically beat out a sacrifice bunt. But this particular stretch, she was struggling and getting thrown out at first base. And so, you know, obviously the growling and the grumbling continued from coach. But one little guy, another famous coach in our area named Keith Sinclair, who was actually a retired football coach, he also was a state championship winning guy, approached her after practice one day. And he said, hey, just a little word of advice. You're, you're popping up whenever you lay down the bunt. Your first move is up where if you would make your first move towards first base and stay down, I think you'd find a lot different result. And that's all he said. And wouldn't you know that the next game, Angelo goes four for four and beats out every bunt. One simple suggestion, no growling, no grumbling, made all the difference. Now the interesting part about this story too is the reason Coach Sinclair was there at practice that day was because his daughter Amy also played on the team. And she just happened to play left field which is the same position Angela played. You see, if Angela continues to struggle and she gets pulled out, his daughter gets playing time. But instead of letting her continue to struggle, he sacrifices for her, self-sacrificing. And that right there made a complete difference in my wife. It made a difference in how she approached coaching herself. It made a difference in what she thought of Keith Sinclair forever. You see, that's a different way to approach things. And that's the banner that we fly under as Christians. A condemnation doesn't work. What Jesus says in Luke chapter, 30, chapter 11, don't try to find chapter 30 of Luke, what Luke chapter 11 verse 32 says, as he's addressing this crowd, as he says, like what, oh boy, that's 1032, that's not good. What he says here is the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. What he's saying is even the men of Nineveh, as Jonah went to preach to them, they repented. They, they saw that judgment was impending. God didn't have to judge them first. They saw the goodness of God. He gave them another shot, and they repented. And yet you have me here, and you refuse to repent. You shake your fist at me. Because it's the goodness of God that brings man to repentance. It's never the condemnation. So let's 
wrap up this morning and look at the second promise of God, of Jehovah Nissi, our banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now you can take great heart in this today. Because if you are here and you are struggling with something, if you're battling something in your flesh, let me tell you, welcome to the club. Every one of us. My thing is probably different than your thing, and your thing is different than mine, but I will tell you that from generation to generation, we are struggling with the flesh. But the good news is, what we read here is that the Lord will have war, and the Lord will win, right? So our victory has already been taken care of, and it's, it's not a matter of how well we fight either. We can do a great job one day and do a lousy job the next. What it really depends on is the man on the hill. The hill far away with the old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, where he had his hands raised, and in fact they were nailed up there with the thief on the right and the thief on the left. That's where our victory is, but the good news is he's not on that cross anymore. He removed himself from there, and he defeated flesh, and he defeated death, and now he has his hands raised under his own power saving us in this battle. So continue to swing, continue to swing away, even if you miss a strike and you think you're going to strike out. Continue that, because the Lord has already had victory. The man on the hill has, and he's the flag that we fly under. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for truths that are some... 3,000 years old that we can read and we can continue to glean from and we can learn as we see these different types that are in the Bible and the, the flesh, this thing that we contend with, that we've contended, contended with from generation to generation, Lord. Thank you that you are going to ultimately one day blot it all out. Lord, I do pray that as we continue to battle, though, down here in the earthly scene, that you would make it apparent to us, make it clear to us that you are there on the hill, that you have your arms raised, that you want to take care of these things. Father, for those of us that, that don't know you, that don't have that relationship, Lord, please pour out your water of salvation that they may drink of it. Lord, for those of us that have been in battle and we get weary, we get worn down, Lord, encourage us to look backwards and see you with arms raised there to save us. Lord, we praise you for that. Jehovah Nisi, in Jesus' name, amen.